Murder in the North, Episode 19, The Hunt for the Black Widow. The blurry colour photograph on the front page of the Danish tabloid Extra Bladet shows a small, slightly stooped woman in a black puffer jacket. She's on her way to court, escorted by police in uniform. It's the culmination of a lengthy investigation into the 44-year-old from northern Jutland. The woman comes from the small Danish town of Beerstedt and looks fairly inconspicuous. The media have dubbed her the Black Widow, and on the day when this picture was taken in September 2003, she's handed the toughest sentence known under Danish law, life imprisonment. You're listening to Murder in the North, a podcast about some of the most shocking murder cases in Scandinavia. Our account of these cases is based on sources in the public domain, including interviews, press releases and court proceedings. Some narrative details were seen as irrelevant to the plot and therefore left out. This podcast series contains scenes of violence that some listeners may find distressing. You're listening to a true story, as researched by Jana Argard and told by me, Jenna Sharp. Carsten Christensen, a 35-year-old father of two and former soldier, is spending Christmas 1992 alone in his house in Beerstedt. Although Yuletide is often known as the Feast of Love in Denmark, this is a difficult time for Karsten. It's only been six months since he separated from the mother of his daughters, and the two of them have found it anything but easy to agree on where the girls will spend the holidays. Karsten goes to bed late in the evening, all alone, in an empty house. But around three in the morning, he's abruptly woken up by someone lunging at him and pummeling him with clenched and gloved fists. Carsten defends himself as best he can. His assailant panics, runs to the kitchen and snatches a steak knife from a drawer before returning to the bedroom and attacking Carsten once more, this time armed with a knife. The intruder stabs Karsten 20 times until finally managing to ram the knife into his neck and leaving it embedded there. On the way out, the murderer turns around, returns to the bedroom and sets fire to a stack of newspapers before leaving the house and locking the door from the outside. When the fire brigade arrives to extinguish the raging fire in the single-family home, They find the mutilated body of the near-naked Carsten Christensen on the ground floor close to the front door. As well as the many bruises and stab wounds, the autopsy finds soot particles in his lungs, which means that Carsten was still alive when the fire broke out. 
The cause of death, therefore, is a combination of asphyxiation, grievous bodily harm, and blood loss caused by stab wounds. After years of serious back problems, Carsten had just been declared unfit for work and was in receipt of the appropriate benefits. Until then, he had worked a few kilometres from his hometown in the Queen's Life Regiment in Nor-Utrup. When his back allowed, he enjoyed handball and badminton. Before their separation, he and his wife played cards with friends once a week in a small suburb outside Aalborg. His daughters, Henrietta and Marianne, who are 13 and 15 respectively, lose their father on this chilly winter's day. It's the beginning of a 10-year search for Carsten's killer, a manhunt that casts a dark shadow over his family and over the small town where he and his girls lived. Denmark's special crime unit is deployed to provide assistance to the local police in Aalborg. Carsten was a quiet man, and his former colleagues, as well as his friends and family, all thought very highly of him. This makes it difficult to arrive at a motive for the brutal murder. Neither Carsten nor his former spouse Benta have money troubles, especially not Benta, who's receiving financial support from her well-to-do father. The small town is buzzing with rumours, and together with their colleagues in Olburg, the Special Crime Unit launches an extensive investigation with a big team of officers. Among other things, they carry out more than 1,500 interviews. As the investigation wears on, just about everybody becomes a potential suspect. From Carsten's father-in-law to his elder brother, from a female friend of the eldest daughter to a local burglar and drug addict. And of course, Carsten's ex-wife, 33-year-old Benta, and her new boyfriend, Carpenter's apprentice John Peterson, also comes under suspicion. Carsten and Benta separated roughly six months ago, and the divorce papers have been filed. Benta has been provisionally awarded sole custody of the two girls. The imminent divorce appears to be amicable enough, but a few days before the murder, Carsten and the brand new couple have a heated argument, and Carsten threatens to demand custody of his younger daughter. Benta and John are now the main suspects. Benta is a petite woman, so the police think she's unlikely to be physically strong enough to commit such a violent crime. And when her boyfriend John, who's only 19, is questioned, he proves to be a self-assured and gentle, but non-too-clever young man. The police obtain a warrant to search Benta's house in Beersted, and are given permission to tap the phones and install microphones on the property. Benta, John and the two daughters are questioned for hours at a time, and the couple's two cars are subjected to detailed analysis, as are their clothes. None of it yields any results. 
The police found the murder weapon at the crime scene, so there's no point searching for it elsewhere. Furthermore, the fire wiped out nearly all the forensic evidence at Carsten's house, so there's not much for investigators to compare. Venter is the only suspect with a motive, according to the police. But even though the girls are everything to Benter, the battle for custody of the daughters isn't thought to be enough of a motive for murder. Besides, she has an alibi. According to the youngest daughter's statement, both Benter and John were at home when it all happened. The funeral takes place several weeks later. The date is kept secret. Prior to the service, the police cordon off a large area around the church and the cemetery. No notice is published in the paper. Instead, friends and relatives are phoned one by one and invited personally. Benta is dressed immaculately and never sheds a tear during the entire ceremony. However, at the reception afterwards, she collapses in the bathroom in tears and has to be taken home. Weeks turn to months, months turn to years. The special crime unit returns to Copenhagen and the local police continue the investigation. The interviews with friends, family and acquaintances bring numerous secrets to light of a family that had once seemed so perfectly respectable. The rumour mill in the small town is in overdrive. Allegations of violence, incest and rape are bandied about. Pandora's box has been opened, revealing all manner of uncomfortable truths. Benta's description of her family as a typical little family unit turns out to be not entirely accurate. It takes the police ten years to gather solid evidence against Benter. She herself provides the ammunition for it when, on a warm day in June 2002, she waits for Dan Janssen, her youngest daughter's ex-boyfriend, in the stairwell of his home. Dan and Henrietta, who's now 23, were together for a few years and have a child together. For some reason, Dan has always had issues with the close bond between his girlfriend and her mother. He tries to get Henrietta to distance herself from her beloved mum. Years of heated discussions follow. When he gives her an ultimatum, Henrietta ends her relationship with Dan, and together with her one-year-old daughter, she moves in with her mother. Dan fights hard for the right to see his daughter, and the relevant authorities rule that Henrietta should facilitate contact between the girl and her father. A day after the ruling, first thing in the morning, Benta drives to Dan's block of flats on Svensgarde in Alburg. She positions herself on the stairs on his floor and waits patiently for him to emerge. But Dan isn't at home, 
It's unclear whether he was in town or whether he just popped out briefly to get some breakfast. But at some point, Benta spots him in the street, walking towards the building. He enters, and before he has a chance to react, she pulls out a hunting rifle, which she'd kept hidden under a baby blanket. And right there on the staircase, she shoots him in the stomach. He dies on the spot. Neighbours call the emergency services, and before long, curious onlookers gather behind the police tape, while paramedics, detectives and forensic investigators enter the crime scene. The neighbours heard a shot and saw a woman getting into a car and driving off. What follows is a wild chase through the streets of Olburg, culminating in Benter's arrest in a car park outside the city. At the police station in Olburg, Benter collapses with what looks like a heart attack. An ambulance is called, but after a brief examination, the nurse tells her irritably that she can stop her charade now, so the police can continue their questioning. A judge rules that the 44-year-old Benter will have to spend the time until her trial on remand. And so she does, first in Olborg, later in Randers. Dan's killing sheds a new light on the so-called Beersted murder, Carsten's violent death a decade earlier. The police decide to question John again, and this time, he confesses everything. Over the years, his relationship with Benta has cooled off considerably, and the police believe, based on the word on the street, that Benta was planning an attack on John. In addition to these rumours, there are recordings of Benta trying to hire a hitman abroad. With John gone, there'd be no witnesses to Carsten's murder. By the same logic, it would make sense for Benta to want to get rid of her daughter's former partner because Henrietta has told Dan details of the murder. With both John and Dan out of the way, Benta could no longer be associated with the murder. In September, Benta and her former partner John appear in court. She is charged with the murders of Carsten and Dan. There's an additional charge of attempted murder because Benter is said to have commissioned a Lebanese hitman based in Germany to kill John for 50,000 Danish kroner, or nearly 6,000 pounds. The jury finds Benter guilty of all charges. The three judges, however, believe that the police have insufficient evidence for the planned attack and only convict Benta on two counts of murder. Nonetheless, she receives the most severe punishment available under Danish law, life imprisonment. In Denmark, life in prison really means life in prison. The sentence is of indeterminate length and a release is dependent on a pardon. John gets off relatively lightly, with a custodial sentence of 10 years. 
How does an ordinary woman from a city like Aalborg become a multiple murderer? When Benta talks about her childhood, she usually doesn't go into any details and will just say that hers was a typical family. She's born in 1958 in northern Jutland. Her father works hard and can be strict, while her mother, with whom she has a close bond, is a gentler person. Benta is industrious and always top of her class in school. At the age of 17, she works in a fast food restaurant, and it's here that classmates introduce her to Carsten, who's a few years older than she is. After a few months, she falls pregnant, and five months before Marianne is born in 1976, the couple marry in southern Jutland, where Carsten is doing his military service. On the surface, the dark-haired Carsten and the blonde Benta are a good match. Although both are a bit reserved, they often meet up with other couples, including Carsten's brother and his wife. Benta is a full-time housewife, and about two years after Marianne is born, she gives birth to another girl, Henrietta. She stays at home until the sisters go to primary school. Military life suits Carsten. He's promoted to the Queen's Life Regiment, which means that in 1977, the family can move back to their hometown, Olberg. They often visit Benta's parents in Beerstedt. But in 1989, the year Benta turns 30, her mother dies of cancer. The intense grief over her mother's loss haunts Benta for years, and she is repeatedly prescribed antidepressants. It's also around this time that tensions arise between Carsten and Benta's father. He threatens to disinherit his daughter unless she dumps her good-for-nothing husband. After falling down the stairs, Carsten develops a hernia, for which he's prescribed bed rest and painkillers. In between spells in hospital, he doesn't exactly make himself useful at home, according to his father-in-law. Carsten and Benta argue a lot. In 1992, during a camping trip with friends, as well as their daughters and their boyfriends, the situation escalates. The atmosphere is tense, the couple are barely on speaking terms, and in the middle of the night, they come to blows, prompting Carsten to seek refuge in one of the neighbouring tents. In August 1992, they separate. By then, Benta already has her eye on a friend of her elder daughter. John, who's 18 at the time, often pops round to visit the family with his mates. When Carsten is in hospital because of his back, Benta invites John to the house. When he arrives, he finds her on her own. She's drunk and flirts and dances with him, and after a while, she starts kissing him. That night, according to John's statements, they decide to become lovers. Because the inexperienced and naive carpenter's apprentice 
has a bad conscience, he doesn't visit Benter again until Carsten has moved out. In December 1992, John and Benter move into a new house on Stationsvai in Veerstad, where the couple sleep on a sofa bed in the living room so the girls can each have their own room. The elder daughter spends a lot of time with her boyfriend, but the younger one is forced to witness her mother being physical with her young lover. During this time, most of the couples in her circle of friends distance themselves from Benta. Her behavior is becoming more and more erratic. If at all possible, she wants to have her daughter and her lover within arm's reach. When they're not, she's on the phone to them. Those close to Benta describe her as domineering, controlling, and manipulative. However, there's one thing everybody who knows her agrees on. Benta loves her daughters, and later her granddaughter, more than anything. But that's not enough for Marianne, her elder daughter, who ends up breaking all contact with her mother. Henrietta, however, remains loyal and continues to visit her in prison. It was this younger daughter who provided Benter and John with their alibi for the night of the murder, an alibi that the police later refute. Psychologists describe Benter as a woman of average intelligence, as someone with a personality disorder, with deviant and self-destructive traits that make her place responsibility and blame with others instead of herself. Police officers describe her as shrewd and cunning, as an exceptional liar and impressive actress. In her hometown, she's well-liked, a woman with lots of different jobs, few female friends, and a very close bond with her children. She's good to her friends, helpful and kind, but tends to keep her cards close to her chest. Benter appeals the 2003 verdict, life imprisonment. Physically, the long stint in prison has left its mark. Benter suffers from extremely painful arthritis flare-ups. This is not the first time that a Danish court has imposed a life term for two counts of murder, but it's usually done in cases involving organized crime or fatal robberies. The Supreme Court sides with Benter's defense team. Her sentence is reduced to 16 years, with the possibility of parole after 11. In 2012, Benter's request for parole is granted, and she starts the slow process of reintegrating in society. Since then, she's led a quiet life away from the limelight and hasn't done any interviews or had any other contact with the media. At 61, she's thought to be in excellent health and living at an undisclosed location in Denmark. From Podimo, this is Murder in the North. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. And for early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.